A renaissance is underway for historically black colleges and universities. While college attendance is declining across the country, enrollment is booming at HBCUs. Um, I'm a hurdler. I do both the 100 and the 400, but the 400 hurdles are my baby. I love them so much. <laughs> That's Imari Deloach. She's a track runner and incoming freshman at Virginia State University. She had dozens of scholarship offers, but chose an HBCU because it felt like home. I decided that I wanted to be around, you know, like people that looked like me and people who make me feel safe and that I know that I could like confide in them and people who have gone through experiences just as I will go through or I have gone through before. So just that tight-knit family environment. Aija Faison is a senior at VSU. She's seen the rise of HBCUs firsthand. I feel like HBCUs are finally getting the recognition that they deserve. And people are actually understanding that like, your degree matters just as much as a PWI degree. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, the HBCU Renaissance. HBCUs rose from the ashes of slavery and have been educating Black students for generations. Cheryl Mango is a history professor at Virginia State University. She says HBCUs are experiencing a renaissance sparked from the Black Lives Matter movement and the fight for racial justice. Yes, I believe that we are living in an HBCU renaissance. And the way that I came to that interpretation is I began as a historian to think about renaissance periods and dark ages. And I often ask myself, were we actually living as an African-American and one who studies African history and African-American history and who is also Black? I often ask myself, I said, wow, is this currently an African dark age? Because around the globe, Black people are suffering. Me now, I'm speaking English, and I have no knowledge of another language to speak. So anyways, I came to see this as an HBCU renaissance because, one, right now HBCUs are enjoying a level of respect, a level of notoriety, a level of support, a level of, of engagement that they have never experienced before. But this comes on the heels of HBCUs experiencing a dark age, <laughs> a dark period in their history. Some people say that it was around the time of 2008, 2007, the financial crisis, the Great Recession. Many HBCUs were under threat and jeopardy of closing. It was a lot of talks in state legislatures in Mississippi and Louisiana, merging them with the larger white schools and closing their doors and slashing. It was a lot of slashing of HBCU already financially crippled budgets. And that it lasted all the way up until about 2016, 2017. You're right. It wasn't so many years ago. Distinguished Black scholars who themselves came from HBCUs and loved them were wringing their hands over the loss of so many Black students to white universities. Why has that changed now? Is, is money coming in that wasn't coming in just a few years ago? Yes. It's coming from the federal government. <laughs> it's coming from state governments. And it's coming from private donors, private organizations, uh, you know, corporate America, even alums are given at higher rates. But we see these ebbs and flows in HBCU history. They tend to change like that because they are so dependent upon external funds for their survival. They don't have large endowments because they are rooted in slavery. These schools are one of the last manifestations that emerge out of slavery that have yet to dissipate under the auspices of integration. What do you think has sparked the Renaissance? What do you think triggered money starting to come in like this and students re-enrolling in HBCUs? I think what sparked it was a combination of the Black Lives Matter movement as well as the racial tensions and racial animus 
that people associate with President Trump's presidency. And I think that HBCUs emerged during the Black Lives Matter era as the victors in that movement because they serve as existing apparatuses that can handle large donations. We see that Black Lives Matter was criticized for its lack of institutional oversight. However, HBCUs have presidents, we have boosters and financial aid departments and accountants and lawyers. What you're dealing with is the largest concentration of the most educated conglomerate of Black people in the nation. And so if somebody wanted to donate, we had that in place. We had systems for donations in place. And we have a record of production. So we emerged, I call HBCUs the victors of African-American history. Enrollment at many HBCUs is at an all-time high. Have you seen that enrollment growth in the last few years with your own eyes? Oh, certainly. The enrollment is just through the the roof. (laughs) For instance, usually when we are going back to school and we're starting in the fall and we have our meetings with the administration and they tell us about the state of the university, we're usually bracing for bad news (laughs) as it relates to enrollment of students and as it relates to our budget. So, for example, I can remember saying, oh, my goodness, we we don't have 400 new freshmen coming in and and we need this number to meet this. And and so what that means is that we're going to have to cut X, Y and Z. But lately, you know, we just put out an announcement that we actually have 1,400 new incoming freshmen as compared to numbers that we tried to reach, which were in the 400 and 500 range. I think what's significant about this is that it's not only helping HBCUs, it's that it's helping the nation. It's helping the state because it's not to say that all of these students wouldn't have been in college elsewhere, but many of the the students that we enroll get an opportunity that they would not have received elsewhere. Many of our students are highly dependent upon financial aid. They come from very low socioeconomic backgrounds. And so what happens is when we have HBCUs with these high levels of enrollment, it's actually going to increase and replicate itself tenfold inside of society as well. I've also read that the most elite HBCUs in the country are seeing a surge in enrollment, and periodically they are attracting students who would have gone to Ivy League schools who've opted recently instead to have the immersive all-Black school experience. Right. And this was the norm until integration, until, you know, the 1960s. It was the norm for HBCUs to train the Black Brain Trust in America. If you look at at the major figures in African-American history, from Oprah Winfrey to Spike Lee, to Thurgood Marshall, to Martin Luther King, to Rosa Parks, to Booker T. Washington, W.B. Du Bois, Megger Evers, Eddie Robinson, they were all trained at HBCUs. But what ended up happening, I argue, is that while they were articulating what integration should be and what desegregation should be, they were not as protective of the HBCU legacy as maybe they should have been. But against the backdrop of lynching and uh, racial terror waged on you by your neighbors, as well as even the government, it's difficult to think about yourself and, and how to preserve and protect your own institutions in that because you're in a crisis situation. But it's a different type of, of situation now because people are purposely and consciously choosing HBCUs. They've tried white colleges for the past 50 years. What we see in much of the research is that they feel very uncomfortable and isolated at these institutions. Their self-worth and self-esteem is just beat down 
by the time they leave there, oftentimes. But on the other hand, at HBCU, research shows that HBCU students, we leave thinking that our degrees are better than students at Harvard. We leave <laughs> feeling like, hey, I went to an HBCU. You know, yeah, you might have went to Stanford. Yeah, you might have went to MIT, but I, I went to HBCU. So what's interesting is the confidence that we instill in our students because you're inside of an environment where you know for a fact that it might be other issues that might prevent you from having certain opportunities, but it's not your race. If you can have just one second, much less four years or more <laughs> of knowing that you can excel and your race is not a factor, that is a sense of relief. That is a safe space that most people never get to enjoy. I have a colleague right now who's, who is the department chair at a big white school <laughs> who has a great salary. And he's right now calling that HBCU like, please, can I get a job there? Because I'm just so tired of the racism. I'm tired of the discrimination. <laughs> I'm tired of just like, take your salary back. Like, I don't want it anymore. I just want to have a certain level of freedom from racism. Yeah, you've said that teaching at an HBCU is something of a sacrifice. And what do you mean by that? That historically, at least, it's been much lower pay and perks than at the better funded white institutions? Yes, teaching at an HBCU is certainly a sacrifice. We get less pay. We have to teach more classes, more students. We have less time for our research. But secondly, we are like in the sausage-making factory. We are so concerned <laughs> with ensuring that our students can thrive and excel because our survival as a race depends on it. See, we understand that it's bigger. HBCU faculty understand, particularly Black faculty at HBCUs, we understand that if we don't educate these students, if HBCUs don't exist, that that means that our future is at stake as a community, as a race, as a society. To educate these students means that our future is a lot brighter than it used to be when we came here as enslaved Africans. That it means that we are opening the doors to education, opening the doors to possibility that were closed to us for many years legally through anti-literacy laws, that we are breaking that, that we are resisting that because we are insisting upon our humanity. We are insisting upon our ability to demonstrate that we are just as capable as anyone else, but also that we have our own ideas, that we have our own unique culture that's different. Come to an HBCU football game. Even, you know, I'm from Louisiana, uh, the home of LSU and the home of the school that I attended, Grambling State University. Both of them excellent football schools, but the experience at the HBCU football game is so much more entertaining <laughs> to me, at least, and to others than at the LSU game because we have our own unique culture, our band culture, our campus queen culture, our dancers, the food. I love the food at HBCUs. It's not always the healthiest, <laughs> but it is great. Like I attended a, I attended a white school as well for my master's. I attended Louisiana Tech University. And I would often wonder when I was an undergrad, why I would see Louisiana Tech students in our cafeteria at Gramlin. <laughs> And then when I attended Louisiana Tech, I understood why. <laughs> I mean, we have our unique culture in terms of our style, in terms of just how the professors teach the proximity of the students. The professors at HBCUs are like, we understand that we stand in the role of a mother, sister, friend, cousin, aunt, preacher, psychologists, and we accept these roles. We, we embrace these roles because we understand that our students come 
from backgrounds that we all come from. And we know how to talk to these students. We know how to deal with their issues. But it's not to say that it's perfect, because I want to say this, that HBCUs have to move to a place in thinking about how do we think critically about HBCUs without seeming racist (laughs) and without seeming anti-HBCU as well, because they also have some challenges. They are not perfect institutions, but certainly you can tell that they were tailor-made for the Black student in America. Cheryl Mango is a history professor at Virginia State University. HBCU bands like the Trojan Explosion at Virginia State University play with power and energy. It's an audio and visual display with high-stepping marching and decked-out drum majors at the center of the performance. Taylor Whitehead is interim band director at Virginia State University. He says that HBCU sound and style is the pinnacle of Black musical excellence. Taylor, you were five years old when you first saw an HBCU marching band performance. What was that like? Do you remember? Absolutely. I was on the campus of Virginia State University, just a couple of hundred yards from the seat that I'm in now. My parents, both Virginia State University alumni, um, they brought me to homecoming. I believe it was homecoming 1978. I was five years old, and I was expecting to see, you know, obviously a football game. But what I did not expect to see was this exciting marching band coming to the stadium. And I can remember when they came through the gate and all of the fans stood up and cheered. For me, it was the first band that I'd really seen in person. Obviously, I'd seen bands on television and movies and things of that nature. But when the band came in, I jumped up and I started asking questions. Mama, who is that and what do they do? And, you know, (laughs) I want to be in the band. I want to go down there. And so uh, to just get into band in sixth grade and middle school and go through high school and eventually become a drum major and come to Virginia State and actually be a member of that band that I first saw and I've said I wanted to be in, uh, just it was an exciting journey. And then to now be at the head of it is just unbelievable. I guess it's a dream come true. And what do you think it is that sets the HBCU marching bands apart from other bands at predominantly white schools. It's the energy, it's the music, it's the passion, it's the harmonies, the melodies, and for sure, it's the sound of the drum. That drum beat, everybody that loves the HBC band loves the drum line. One of the big distinctive factors is, um, in many PWIs, uh, the music is never memorized. The students look at the music in every performance. Uh, We're in our band camp right now, and our students in a two-week band camp will probably memorize 50 songs. And these are songs that they play throughout the course of the year. But the other thing is we do everything in a unified fashion. Um, If we move to the left, everybody moves to the left the same way. If we back up, everybody backs up the same way. If we sing, if we say chants, if we (laughs) clap our hands, we do everything in a unified way that is uh, not, not just for the sake of unity, but it's for the sake of the visual performance. I believe in saying this. If I'm going to entertain people of deaf, they need to see something that is exciting. If I entertain people that are blind, they need to hear something that's exciting. So we want to be audio and visual entertainment. And in these bands, when they talk about Black excellence, Black joy, what are we seeing in the bands that exhibit that? Well, one of the things that we're seeing is that a lot of our musicians that come out of our bands are going on to become professional musicians. One of my favorite groups are the Commodores. Many of the Commodores, including Lionel Richie, was in the band at Tuskegee. And when you think of the contributions of American music, many of them come from African-Americans. And many of those African-Americans at some point in time participated in HBCU bands. So we are the pinnacle, I believe, of Black musical excellence for sure. You know, it's funny. I was at the University of Virginia in the football stadium in the mid-1990s when I saw for the first time the Virginia State Marching Band come in, and I was just electrified. Sarah, I was there. I was there. <laughs> what, do, what do you mean you were there? I was a part of that group. Actually, I was a graduate student at Virginia State. I vividly remember, first of all, receiving the invitation. And my band director, he wanted to work extremely hard 
to do a great performance there because we realized that that game and the, the attendance at that game would be larger than most of the games that we were used to. Then we wanted to, you know, make an impact. My band director was really big on marching and maneuvering the formations that we made on the field, making sure that the lines were straight. Everything was visually pleasing. So he wanted to make sure that we were on the top of our game. And we, we were prepared. And I can remember the very first song that we played was a disco song by Cheryl Lynn called To Be Real. <laughs> and we were playing it for the first time. And I can remember vividly marching in. And the announcer says, and from Petersburg, Virginia, we have the Virginia State University Trojan Explosion Marching Band. And I can instantaneously remember many of the fans turned their backs to the band because they were disappointed that their college, their beloved school, would potentially invite an HBCU band to perform at a football game. I can remember as we started to play uh, Cheryl Lynn's To Be Real, and it has a very famous intro that anybody knows disco knows it. It starts out da-da-da-da, 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 da-da, and we start to drill and we start to maneuver. As the band starts to play and the band is, we're sounding good, many of the fans kind of turned around and took a peek and to see what was happening. <laughs> and so by the time that we finished the performance, we had won their approval and they were cheering and they were clapping. And UVA actually ended up inviting Virginia State to come up for a second time. So it definitely was a positive experience. And, you know, I, I often tell the students about experiences just like that. Tell me something about the tradition of the drum major in an HBCU band. They're just fantastic. When people see the drum major, first of all, the drum major wears a different uniform. The drum major wears a larger hat. The drum major carries a mace. The drum major is the center of the excitement, the center of the energy. And when they uh, pump up the band and just get the band energized, it takes the whole band to another level. But they're expected to do that. And drum majors across the country and, and PWIs and HBCU bands have that level. But in HBCUs, it's just at an extremely different level. Many of the HBCU bands, um, the drum majors have even nicknames. I mean, Jackson State, uh, they generally have five drum majors, and they call them the J5 or the Jackson 5, just like Michael Jackson and his brothers. Ed Bethune-Cookman, the drum majors are known as the five horsemen and things of that nature. But drum majors are a huge part of HBCU bands. And even though, you know, some people see the band directors and we wear the fancy uniforms and the hats, much of what the, the, of the level of preparation has come from the drum major. You know, football games have four quarters, but HBCU bands are known for something called zero quarter and fifth quarter. What are they? So zero quarters started in the SWAC, which is, stands for the Southwestern Athletic Conference. And what was happening was the NCAA started to change rules because of HBCU bands. We play with a lot of power, a lot of energy, and a lot of aggression. And a lot of the football teams and coaches were complaining that during the game, their players and their coaches could not really hear the plays because the bands were playing so loud. <laughs> so some of the band directors started agreeing to get to the game before the game actually happened, and they could play songs back and forth. Now, prior to that, we already had something called the fifth quarter, which was at the end of the game, the bands would exchange a, a certain number of songs. And the idea was to play the best songs, to have the best, we want almost like a DJ, to play the best particular song at that time, that we would get a reaction from the fans that were still out there watching. And uh, as the fifth quarter concept started to grow, Many people that realized what was going to happen when the game was over, they refused to leave the stands. They would stay on the field and watch the bands trade the songs, sometimes for hours. I can remember one time Florida A&M University and North Carolina A&T State University, 1999, they played for two and a half hours after a football game. But one real big difference with HBC bands, probably from PWIs, is we're super competitive. 
when that other band comes into the stadium, they are our enemy for the day. And we <laughs> consider it war. And, and in war, the idea is to take out the enemy. In PWR culture, I can remember um, seeing bands, when the visiting band comes in, they cheer for the other band. That would never happen in HBCUs because they're, they're the enemy. And But <laughs> when the game is over, we fellowship together. Many of us belong to some of the same music fraternities and sororities and things of that nature. So there are 107, roughly 107 HBCUs. Only about 50 of us have marching bands. So that is only 50 of us in the whole world that can say we belong to an HBCU marching band. So that puts us in a very small class of people. And so we take pride in that, knowing that we are an elite group of individuals. Tell me how bad it got at HBCUs and for the bands before this moment we're in now, which has been called an HBCU renaissance. Um, when COVID came, it changed the world, uh, everything, but it definitely impacted our bands tremendously, being that many of the HBCU presidents and all of the athletic conferences decided that we would not play sports, during, particularly during the first year of COVID, and some of them during the second year, where um, our PWI counterparts continued to play. So the students who we recruited— students that were already members in the band, students that were excited about coming to them. Many of them lost interest. We were actually having band practice on Zoom. Um, and it just, you know, I never would have dreamed that we would have got to that. So music stopped for a lot of students. We have students that, you know, they were playing school-rented instruments or school loan instruments. They didn't have access to instruments anymore. So they, they quickly kind of lost interest in it. And many of them did other things. But we're seeing it come back. We will be a larger program this year, and I expect many other programs will be larger. How much will you grow from what you've been? We will probably, from last year, we'll probably grow by about 35 members. Last year, we were about 100 total people. This year, we should be roughly around 135 people. Historically, this university, the largest it ever was, was about 165 people. So we're getting close to that. As far as the Trojan explosion, which game are you really looking forward to now in the fall? Hmm. Um, well, maybe the first one, not that it's a competitive one, but me, this being my first time to serve at the head of the program, um, we right now, our football stadium is going through considerable renovations and we're going to have turf on our field. The football field has been moved closer to the bleachers so the fans will get much more of the impact of the sound and, and be able to really see the performance and enjoy it more. Um, in terms of a competitive standpoint, some of the rivalries that we have uh, with bands, um, I would say Virginia Union University, which is the closest school to us, roughly about 26 or 27 miles away. We have built a very big rivalry. In a, a couple of days before the game, we have a battle of the bands that we host inside in a gym. And the battle of the bands can draw more people than the football game because our following is huge, not just with students and alumni, but high school band uh, individuals. But uh, the following for HBCU band culture is at a high. So we always do a battle of the bands with them, and it's a very competitive and exciting time. I want to go to that. Come on down. I'll make <laughs> sure I have tickets just for you. <laughs> well, what a pleasure. Taylor Whitehead, thank you for taking time to share all this with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Taylor Whitehead is Interim Band Director at Virginia State University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. What do William Faulkner and a cool pair of sneakers have in common? More than you might think. My next guest is Jermaine King. He's a sneakerhead and an English professor at Virginia State University who specializes in Southern literature. He's combined his two passions into the first ever college English course on sneaker culture. When I was about 12 years old, the New York Knicks played the Boston Celtics in the first round of the NBA playoffs. Back when the NBA playoffs were, the first round was five games. The Celtics had home court advantage, and the Knicks had not won in Boston since 1984. You guessed it. <laughs> the Knicks, uh, they, they ran them off the court, 
and Patrick Ewing wore the Ewing Athletic 33 high. And I remember the caption in the article, there's a small photo of the shoes and the caption said, he even goes motoring in his own shoes. And <laughs> they were art. I looked at it. I'm like, oh my gosh, they're gorgeous. Went and found my mother who was doing something motherly at the time. I was like, hey, mom, can I, can I get these? And she said to me, yeah, um, we'll put them on layaway to tomorrow and we'll get them out of layaway next week when I'm on payday, right? The store was called New York Fashions, okay? This is in Franklin, Virginia. And I was excited. I'm like, oh my gosh. Walked in, the, the proprietor of this particular store mentioned to me that the store was robbed and that my layaway was included. And I went from 1990 until 2012 because the company went out of business, unfortunately. And uh, so, yeah, I didn't have a chance to get a pair as a child. But any person who met me between the years of 1990 and 2012, if they knew me, they knew of my love of a brand that didn't exist. Did you ever get Ewing 33 highs? Yes. So imagine a college professor sitting in office hours and not having students come by. So I was killing time, right? And while I was killing time, I was on YouTube. This is back in like 2006, okay? On YouTube, fell down a rabbit hole and eventually started looking for stories about the 33 high. There was a young man interviewing these two guys near a transit in Toronto, Canada. And he was asking all these questions, these specific, oh my man, what, this guy must know something. Like, why is he asking these two dudes these questions about the, about the Ewing Athletic and the 33 Rye? So I sent him an email and I introduced myself. Hey, I'm Jermaine King. I'm faculty here at this particular university. I give him the whole story I just gave you, plus some more. And we became friends over the years, just going back and forth, telling these great stories, whether it be hip hop culture, whether it be fashion, stinking culture, just a, a kindred spirit. And one day he called me. He was like, hey, man, I got some news for you. He's like, your wait is over. We've acquired the licensing and uh, we're bringing it back. So that particular pair that I mentioned to you in the fabula uh, of me and, and Ewing Athletic was a white and red pair of 33 high. I remember coming home from work one day back. This is about what? Let's say six years ago, maybe. And there was a package on my, on my porch. I'm thinking like, man, did I order anything? I don't remember ordering anything. And, um, I, you know, I'll get out, go retrieve the package, opened it. And Ewing Athletic actually sent me the exact shoe that was stolen from New York Fashion's uh, inventory that I never had a chance to buy. The one that I was going to get from Layaway. So that's the full circle story of me <laughs> and my Ewing's. I love that. When you were really little, what was your earliest sneaker that you loved? So back when I was about in the first grade, between that, that period between kindergarten and first grade, you know, the urban legend was that, going back to like 81, 82, around in that time frame, I remember hearing that Nikes, okay, specifically the brand Nike, you could run faster and jump higher, right? At that age, you know, I'm spending most of my time outside. And I went to my mom at the time and was like, hey, can I have a pair of these? Uh, because I want to run, I want to jump higher, right? I want to run faster. And um, right. she brought me a pair of white, almost like brushed, heavy, heavy canvas. Um, and the, <laughs> the color was, a, the swoosh was a little deeper than Columbia blue. But I remember there are pictures somewhere uh, of me wearing those and outside doing exactly what I wanted to do at the time, which was run and jump and be outside all day. But man, I just remember being so content. And that literally is between kindergarten and first grade. Between that time and right before you became a teenager, did sneakers among your friends become more of a thing? To be quite honest with you, they, it, they were a thing as far back as elementary. I remember... Right. And also in fourth grade, that same year, we had a field trip. And again, I'm from Southampton County, Franklin, Virginia. We were going on a field trip to Washington, D.C. And I, I had a pair, one of the sneakers that I had at the time was a white and red pair of uh, Reebok BB 8400s. And um, I just asked, like, hey, can I get a pair of shoes? I asked my dad, can I get a pair of shoes for this field trip? He was like, yeah. 
And um, I remember getting out of the car at 6 a.m. <laughs> on the day of the field trip, and all my friends looked down like, oh, my gosh, like, what? Like man, your shoes are bad. Like, um, so, yeah, they've always <laughs> been a thing. And then we're, we're talking fourth grade, and, of course, as I got older, if you think of the tradition of the back-to-school sneaker, right, which is multicultural, if you think of that tradition, everyone wanted to have – whatever they identified with, whatever brand or whatever shoe silhouette they identified with, the thing was to have a back-to-school shoe. And also, you wanted your shoes to look as new as long as possible. So you were conscious of what you did in them. For example, if you had PE, you would have another pair of shoes at school specifically for PE. And this was a time where you didn't worry about losing your shoes or someone taking them. You just brought them a... a a beater pair, as they say now in the culture, to wear for PE because you didn't want to ruin your shoes faster than you had to, if that makes sense. So back to school shoes are a thing. And there were tennis shoes and sneakers and kids and converse. Why was sneaker culture African-American culture? Sneaker culture started within African-American culture because sneaker culture gives a voice to the voiceless it's a form of expression, thus making it an extension of African-American culture and, and also within African-American culture, a direct extension from hip hop culture. You know, part of sneaker culture, authentic subscription is, you know, you're not walking around presenting yourself in the best way if your shoes are run down. OK, now, if you're if they're for utility, that's one thing. But in the same way that someone would, as they say, colloquially to look up on yourself, right? You want to look presentable, hmm. that, that your sneakers should look as nice as they possibly can. And that is an extension of Afram culture. That's an extension of hip hop culture. Um, if you think of the expression, your Sunday's best, right? So for a lot of people, their best clothing was what, what they would wear to church or, or in a formal setting. And within African culture, within African-American sneaker culture, that extended. And I'm like, okay, I want to look that way at all times, but also in clothes that aren't traditional. And when I say not traditional, not a shirt and tie or a suit or slacks. I want my shoes to look good because if they look new, I look like I'm not a subscriber of the proletariat, whether I am or not. Do you think the first sneaker superstar was in the 80s with Nike and the Air Jordans? No. So actually, we can go back further than that. A lot of times when we talk about sneaker culture, a lot of individuals want to begin around 1984 when Nike essentially struck gold in signing Michael Jordan. But what we know now as sneaker culture actually goes back to the mid-1800s, okay? And if we want to think about... <laughs> <laughs> Legitimately, back in the, in the mid-1800s, if you think about the, the vulcanizing process of rubber, the first shoe that we know, if we want to call them sneakers, were not durable, okay? They didn't last long. They didn't have the same usability as traditional shoes. And they were expensive. So how could someone stunt? How could someone show that they had money? Well, I want to buy these shoes that don't even last long, and I can afford to do it, Okay. So those who were affluent enough bought those shoes because that was a status symbol at that time and still are. Sneakers still are a status symbol. And then they became associated with sport. We wouldn't get into basketball where the working class or the proletariat was able to engage in the sport because you got to remember, the only thing they really needed was sneakers and a makeshift hoop and a ball, so basketball became more inclusive and gave way to the rise of sneaker culture from the what we know back in the, the mid-1800s to all the way up into the 70s and then to the 80s. What role has hip-hop played in promoting sneaker culture? Is hip-hop essential to it? Absolutely. So sneaker culture is first and foremost uh, an extension of basketball and sports, but outside of that, and especially today, hip-hop culture spread sneaker culture globally. And today, entertainers, specifically 
rappers are more responsible for modern day sneaker culture than athletes. Who was up front with that with the hip hop community? Oh, that's clearly Run DMC. Run DMC is the first non-athlete entity to have a sneaker endorsement and have a signature shoe. Run DMC had a signature shoe in line. We're, we're talking about a time period where in the early 80s, where rappers were still dressed in a punk style or in a rock star style. And rap had not developed its own identity or its own look. And Jam Master J, the group's legendary DJ, and if we go back and analyze what he wore, you know, the fedoras, the leather jackets, the big truck jewelry and the gold chains, that was his signature look. And it was Russell Simmons' idea, like, hey, we're going to dress like Jay, okay? And their fans began to dress like them, and they noticed it. And they're thinking, like, man, these people are dressed like us. And they went to Adidas and, and asked, like, hey, we want a million dollars. Like, we're bringing you sales. Give us this, this endorsement. Give us, you know, give us a million dollars, right? And they had this brilliant idea, long story short, to invite the reps. The head, they flew in from Germany to Madison Square Garden. And at one point of the concert, DJ Rudd asked, they asked everyone to, hey, put your Adidas in the air. And everyone took off one of the shoes and just held it up in the air. And those executives saw that. <laughs> and they right. immediately signed Run DMC to, a, to what they asked for. They were the first entertainers and the first rappers to not only have their own shoe, but to be endorsed by a company and to have a clothing line. When did they come out with that song, My Adidas? My Adidas was an answer to Dr. Gerald Dees's Felon Sneakers. And Felon Sneakers is 1985. My Adidas is 1986. And in that song, and Dr. And I have to mention this, and Dr. Joe Dees' Felon Sneakers, he's speaking of sneaker culture in a negative way. Hey, you're going to get arrested because you're dressed that way, first of all. And you're not going to be able to afford a lawyer because you're wearing shoes. You're going to be destitute. Like you're going down the wrong path because people who are successful don't wear sneakers. Okay. And he released that song. And my Adidas is a direct answer, a response to his song. And, you know, you have DMC who says <laughs> in the song, you know, my Adidas only bring good news and they are not used as felon shoes. And that is a direct callback to Dr. Joe D's and his song felon sneakers. Let's play a clip from my Adidas. Timeless. You have DMC who speaks and he is defending sneaker culture. Even in that clip, he talks about philanthropy. You know, I stepped on stage at Live Aid, people gave and the poor guy paid. He spends his verses talking about sneaker culture in a way to deflect negativity from around it. And then you have DJ Run who just talks about, yo, I got mad sneakers. I got, now I have mad sneakers and I'm fresh and they're dope, right? So we have literally <laughs> the, 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 the split duality or the duality of, of a sneaker head or as I like to say, a sneaker culture practitioner and there are differences. What about at the college level? What's sneaker culture like, for instance, at HBCUs? Sneaker culture at HBCUs is the culture. It's not even a subculture. You have... Let's 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 be as forthright as we possibly can. This is how hip hop culture is now popular culture and sneaker culture is popular culture. At Virginia State University, the highest ranking official, our president, 14th president, Dr. McCole Abdullah, is a authentic subscriber within sneaker culture. So here's the thing. If we think about this, if the CEO, the president, the highest ranking official 
at a school, and in this instance, it just happens to be an HBCU, is an authentic subscriber of sneaker culture, that's a trickle-down effect. So this is, you may see pictures of Dr. Abdullah in a suit. He may have sneakers on. You may see a picture of him in a polo and jeans with sneakers. But you're going to see him in sneakers more times than not. And that's not saying he wears them all the time, but he's known for wearing them. So that's not, that's not even questioned. It's part of our culture. It's part of popular culture. And it's an extension of hip-hop culture. So again, sneaker culture at HBCU it's not even thought of about being a culture. It's part of being an HBCU. It's just there. And it's been there forever. So here you are, a classically trained English professor with a love of Southern literature. And you're teaching the first ever English class on sneaker culture. And you call it soul food. And that's S-O-L-E. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Was that a hard sell for the the president of the school for you to teach a class called soul food? So no. So initially when that course was created, that course was created at JCSU at Johnson C. Smith University. Now I've always had this personal interest or this, this knowledge that was the, you know, it's just me It's part of who I, who Jermaine is. And I was asked or was asked in a meeting like, Hey, does anyone have any ideas for any new courses? And I remember hearing that thinking, yeah, okay. Uh, I got some ideas, but I don't have the, the life force to explain why this is important. So I'm not going to say anything. And I sat there and I remember I was singled out like, Hey, Jermaine, do you have any ideas? And I mentioned it, this is back yeah. in 2014. And I mentioned the premise and I was asked for a syllabus. And 30 minutes later, I delivered the syllabus and the rest is history. Now, as the class goes over my role here at Virginia state, part of my recruitment was that like, Hey, the magic that you are that you are creating elsewhere, we want you to create that here. And we want this energy and we want your connections. And that was an easy sell for me because of the magic and the, the great things that were happening and are happening at Virginia State University. But speaking of uh, if you referencing Dr. Abdullah, no, that was not a hard sell at all. For someone who permeates authentic subscription and 21st century pedagogy, not a hard sell at all. How'd you figure out how to make sneaker culture also a literature class? One of my favorite assignments is for students to apply Marxist theory to something within the culture. And it could be a song, it could be a video, it could be a text, it could be an article. But to have a mastery of the literary theory to be able to apply it. And there's a rapper named Freeway. In Freeway's song, What We Do. In the video, he's pictured wearing hip-hop fashion, but specifically he's wearing the Philadelphia 76er colorway of the Converse weapon uh, made popular by Dr. J during the latter years of his career. And in the song, he says, and he's referring specifically to his daughter when he says this, when her sneaks start leaning and the heat stops working, then my heat starts working, I'm gonna rob me a person. And essentially what he's saying is that when my daughter's shoes are so worn that they begin to pronate and we can't afford to pay the utility bill to keep the, the, the house warm, then I'm going to go to arms and I'm gonna go out and rise up because I'm a member of the proletariat class, I'm going to go out and take the things I need for the survival of my family. Right. And again, that is textbook Marxist theory. But for students to be able to connect that and to see that, hey, these are things that I may listen to or music that I listen to, this theory is something that I already know. I just didn't know that this was the theory. Students must love this class. Can you tell they do? Well, it's at capacity every time it's taught. That's not so much about me or the text, Soul Food Digestible Sneaker Culture, is more about the students and their desire to identify or to have a say in their education. You know, something that they can relate to. And I'm not saying that students can't relate to Faulkner because when I was a young lad, I related to William Faulkner and still do. But the point is, at some point in our lives, we want to not only be at home, but when we can't be at home, we want to feel like it. And of course, like Soul Food 
help students feel at home. So yeah, they that class, the enrollment is always full. And it's full because students identify with it and they feel at home within it because they have a say in their education and in, in previous knowledge and an interest in what they're learning. Have you noticed that HBCUs are rising right now? Absolutely. Absolutely. HBCUs are rising partly because of the untimely deaths of many African-Americans who were murdered by the hands of, of the police. Right now, the HBCU is reaping the benefits of individuals wanting to be closer to what I alluded to a moment ago, and that's home. And again, there's so many options in America and internationally for education. But we are fortunate that through the negativity of certain current events, that individuals are seeking the HBCU for enlightenment, they're seeking it for enrichment, and they're seeking it for an opportunity to reach back into communities to improve communities while at the same time increasing enrollment in HBCUs. Well, Jermaine King, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. I am humbly and graciously moved by your invitation, and thank you so much for having me. Jermaine King is an English professor at Virginia State University. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues, uvahealth.com. Support also comes from the Lumina Foundation, committed to making opportunities for learning beyond high school available for all. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Casto are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance and to Jennifer Williamson and WVST in Petersburg for recording assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.